exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. I want to thank you very much for including me as part of your martial arts journey. And you're in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. People that take a great deal of care and put in a lot of sweat equity into their craft. By around the world, I mean that 70% of you, approximately 70%, are right here in the U.S. Another 25% are there in the U.K. And the other 5% is spread out between Australia, India, and some other places. Wherever you are at, I'm very grateful that you participate in this program. Today, we are picking up in part two of reevaluating the theater of hand combat. This is an essay based on Ben Junkins from 2013. I highly encourage you to go back to the first one because, as usual, just like in a martial arts lesson, hey, if you missed part one, I'm not going back through the arm bars again. We're moving on to something else. You'll need to catch up with one of your classmates or catch your notes. Oh, speaking of notes, I have started including on episodes that it would be appropriate to include a Q&A right there online on the webpage. I can't do it on the show notes, but on every webpage where it's appropriate, there'll be anywhere from 5 to 15 questions that are associated with the episode that would give you some sort of like real scholarship sort of basis of knowledge that you can exercise. In this particular episode, we're going to be looking at real reasons to assume that popular religion and martial arts can be and often would be associated with large rebellions and how that happens and why it happens. Then we're going to be looking at a pivotal spot in academic history as well as in real cultural history. Where is this theatrical turn in the Chinese martial arts? And I think that this is one of the most amazing part of this essay is how somebody's barking one thing, somebody's barking another thing, and all of a sudden you're realizing that they're barking the same thing. I think you'll find that part very interesting. So get yourself settled and let's get ready to reevaluate the theater of combat. So what does Charles Holcomb attempt to accomplish in his article? He lays out his central aims right in the introduction. Quote, Everywhere in China, the martial arts either present themselves in the guise of simple exercises or are shrouded in arcane religious mysteries. Western enthusiasts often feel impelled to strip away these religious trappings and construct a version of the martial arts that is neither simple gymnastics nor religion, but emphasizes true hand-to-hand combat skills. The question remains... Is this an authentic understanding of the martial arts? This religious heritage, in fact, turns out to be crucial to the development of a conscious martial arts tradition. Before trying to analyze this religious heritage, however, one should survey the history of the technical side of combat skills in China. For the modern martial arts grew out of a distinctive approach to physical combat that has been characteristic to China since antiquity, end quote. I'm going to take a moment here and introduce a term that's going to be coming up here in the essay, hagriagapha. It's a word that comes from the root meaning sacred writing, 
More specifically today is the third of the three Jewish divisions of the Old Testament. So as we return, Holcomb is discussing the emergence of hagiography in the martial arts. He restates his case with characteristic directness. Quote, If it is necessary to debunk the Bodhidharma myth, since it is historically false, we must also be wary of the modern materialistic impulse to tear aside the veil of myth to uncover the real martial arts beneath. The truth is that for most Chinese practitioners of the arts, the myths were real enough, and spiritual goals, in any case, are more central to the historical martial arts than actual combat skills. Rather than viewing myths and legends as effluvia from the real martial arts, it is more accurate to see the martial arts as a relatively minor byproduct of the Budo-Daoist popular religion and the medieval immortality cult. End quote. So basically, Holcomb was saying in short, the real reason that for the constant reform movements within the Chinese martial arts, all hoping to restore the fighting proudness of the various styles, is that these systems were never very good at practical fighting in the first place. Unarmed self-defense is a modern preoccupation. Holcomb may even say delusion. And this is not what the Chinese martial arts were originally designed for. At this point, one would be correct in sensing the long shadow of Joseph Needham in this view of their traditional fighting styles. This famous scholar argued once that Chinese boxing was not only derived from, but it was essentially a branch of Taoist health exercises. Holcomb cites Needham's findings approvingly throughout his article. And here comes the cavalry, because now Stanley Henning, in his important article, Academia Encounters the Chinese Martial Arts, which was published in the China Review International, Volume 6, Number 2, Fall 1999, has already criticized this view openly. Henning demonstrated quite correctly that there were a number of problems with Joseph Needham's readings of the basic history due to his general unfamiliarity with the subject matter. Those incorrect views, based on his unfamiliarity of the subject matter, have been magnified and projected throughout the literature by all of the subsequent authors who use him as a basic resource. Henning goes on to argue that this demonstrates the need for a better, informed, and more reliable body of scholarship on the Chinese martial arts. Henning's article is critical as it lays out the constitutional argument for Chinese martial studies as a field. One might assume that Henning's takedown of Needham is fatal to Holcomb's argument, but it is not. In truth, Holcomb does not really care all that much about the ancient origins of China's various boxing systems. Apart from a few citations of well-known sources and a little bit of hand-waving, he doesn't have a lot to say on the subject at all. Holcomb is actually much more interested in the late 19th century, it is the research of other historians like Escherich and Elizabeth Perry on the various late Qing rebels, such as the White Lotus, the Eight Trigrams, the Boxers, and even the Red Spears, that informs his views on the essential nature of the martial arts. Here he is on much firmer ground. One could easily argue that the schools of boxing promoted by various millennial cults 
were not actually grounded in White Lotus theology. Yet, it is harder to ignore the persistent and troubling relationship between peasant rebellions, popular religion, and the organization of boxing societies. Ben states that he tends to believe that it is really economic and social pressures that lay behind this association, and yet it existed at least in certain areas of China at certain times. Of course, those final qualifications are precisely the problem. Holcomb was dependent on the second literature of his day, and the scholars that produced those books happened to be very interested in understanding the sources of revolution and rebellion in northern China. So, he spent a lot of time reading about the association between martial arts societies and revolution, but is this really an accurate view of all 19th century martial arts? Or was he the victim of sampling bias? based on his selection of observations. One can suspect that this is actually the critical flaw in his theory. Nevertheless, it is useful to set the issue of selection bias aside and look at what Holcomb actually wrote. There are very good reasons to assume that both popular religion and martial arts would be associated with large rebellions. These sorts of social movements need some way of unifying a group of otherwise diverse individuals and then empowering them. The political scientist Anthony Marx has argued that religion often served as the glue that held contending factions together in pre-modern civil wars. He also notes that religion was often drafted into this role because there were just not that many other ideologies or identities that cross both geographic and demographic lines. In fact, if you look at it closely, the Chinese government actively suppressed any widespread social movement that it did not directly control. Popular religion was one area that it was never able to effectively regulate, though it was not from the lack of trying. It is only natural that revolutions would turn to these groups as unifying identities. Likewise, the village militia was the only combat organization that most peasants were at all familiar with, sometimes sponsored by the local gentry, and other times entirely independent of social control. And they often turned to boxing instructors to act as trainers and coordinators. In short, it is doubtful that it would be possible to stage a large-scale 19th century peasant rebellion without somehow implicating the local temples or boxing instructors. These were just about the only institutions that were actually available and useful. It is pretty certain that enterprising local leaders would seek to combine both of these forces under their control, for example, as what happened in the Eight Trigrams Rebellion, and that should not be a great surprise. Holcomb acknowledges in the conclusion of his article that in other times the martial arts may have been something very different. He notes that in ancient China, the Han Dynasty and such, that the, quote, martial arts did not seem to exist as distinct from military skills. So he concedes that at one point in time, the martial arts may have been primarily just about combat and fighting. Yet he points out that when thinking about the combat systems that actually exist now, what we need to consider are the more recent periods. After all, they gave rise to the modern practices which are currently under consideration. Let's pause for a moment. How many other authors would actually agree with this? 
Ben has argued in other places that the traditional Chinese martial arts are basically a modern phenomenon that have their roots in the Qing and Republican periods. What happened in the ancient past may be of historical interest, but it is not really accessible to modern students. Yet and still, it is evident that not everyone agrees with this outlook. Henning is very interested in the military history of the early eras. So is Peter Lorget. In fact, it is almost the entire discussion of Peter Lorget's book focused on ancient Chinese history. It seems that nothing after the Song Dynasty really interested him, and his treatment of both the Qing and Republic period were so brief and cursory as to be almost of no value at all. Take a moment and notice what has happened. When Lorget dismisses any discussion of spirituality in the martial arts, he does so by focusing exclusively on the early period and dismissing more recent history as unimportant. When Holcomb claims that the martial arts are in reality a branch of popular spirituality, he does so by focusing on the late Qing and Republican period while quickly skipping over most all early dynasties. It's also interesting to note that these two do not even disagree all that much on the proper way to characterize both of these periods. Lorget tended to dismiss arguments about spirituality in the Chinese martial arts because of the transparent myth-making and religious innovations of the late Qing and Republic era. Yet for Holcomb, it was exactly these same features that make these periods critical for understanding what the martial arts actually are, in his opinion. This seems like a spirited debate, yet upon a closer inspection, the two sides spend a lot of time just talking past each other and saying the same thing. We also want to note that not every problem in Holcomb's piece can be attributed to a difference in priorities. Towards the end of his article, he introduces the topic of opera. The martial arts have had a long association with the stage. Many hand combat experts actually made their living as professional performers, even in opera troops or on the streets. Further, military stories were popular with audiences and opera companies as they competed to have the most exotic and entertaining styles demonstrated on their stages. Opera also had an important impact on the historical views of the average Chinese peasant. Most of these individuals were illiterate, and so their understanding of history and culture often came from these highly fictionalized stories. Both Eshrick and Holcomb note that operatic scripts had an important impact on the self-image and behavior of a large number of people in society. Bandits would see themselves as akin to the heroes from Water Margin, and rebels might rely on the romance of the Three Kingdoms as their dominant mental map of large-scale political action. Unfortunately, the entire discussion of opera comes off as a missed opportunity. One would assume that given the centrality of religion to Holcomb's argument, that he would have taken the opportunity to tie operatic performance to local religious culture. Paradoxically, he does not even attempt to do this. In fact, his entire discussion ignores any connection between the popular religion and opera. Yet, it was the local temples and their very charitable organizations that usually hire the opera troops in the first place. And while the entire community will come out to watch the performance, 
the affair was usually part of a religious ritual staged for the local gods. It was their statues that would get the best box seats, allowing the local gods to enjoy the show from the VIP section. Furthermore, the actors on the stage were often viewed as being possessed by the ghost or the historical character that they portrayed. To watch a traditional opera performance was to enter the world of the supernatural. Given his interest in the spiritual beliefs and practices behind the Boxer Uprising, for example, spirit possession by opera characters, one would have thought that this aspect of the theater would have received careful consideration. In fact, if one were looking to make a connection between the origins of Kung Fu and spirituality, opera traditions are one of the places that scholars like Professor Ben Junkins would start. Holcomb appears to be unaware of all of this. He instead uses the operatic tradition as an opening to discuss both modern and ancient popular novels. Clearly, there are some links with literary traditions here, yet most of the peasants who he describes as being so influenced by the opera would have been illiterate and unable to read any of the classic novels that he discusses. They would have known these texts only through secondary oral performances. In his conclusion, Holcomb notes how White Lotus revolutionaries were able to adopt and manipulate the martial language of the theater to gain support among the uneducated and historically illiterate masses. Ben states that this is yet another missed opportunity. He does not doubt that this happened, but when it did, it was not a case of a religious leader misappropriating theater to manipulate the local peasants. Rather, rural China theater very much was part of the larger system of folk religion. This use of operatic vocabulary might be better understood as a local religious figure speaking in the language of popular spirituality. This combination of millennial cults and theater might be thought of as a popular religion all the way down. The real question, and it is one that Holcomb never actually stops to consider, is whether there is actually any martial arts happening in all of this. Certainly there was violence, rebellion, and martial values. But are those things really the same as martial arts? When you look at something like the Boxer Uprising, there were lots of peasants practicing magical invulnerability techniques, and those were occasionally part of the martial arts. But how many actual boxing instructors actually joined this pack? Certainly, there were a few. But serious martial arts students were rather rare, and they were vastly outnumbered by local displaced peasants who had a little bit of hand combat training. This is actually one of the areas where Escherich comes in rather handy. He provides a great case study of the Shandong Plum Blossoms clan's involvement with the anti-foreign violence the vast majority of the local martial artists wanted nothing to do with it and could see all too well how it was going to end. Only one pair of local instructors and their students actually joined this pack, and they were excommunicated by their school for doing so. We have a very heady mix of popular religion, martial mythology, and violence beginning to mix here. But is this really a martial arts movement? At the moment, Ben states with what we have, 
it is impossible to answer. It is not from a lack of data. We have all the historical detail we need, at least when talking about the major uprisings of the late 19th century. The problem we're actually having is one of actual conceptual clarity. While Holcomb made a number of arguments about the place of the martial arts in popular culture, he actually never stopped to think critically about what they were. For instance, given that there is no single universally agreed upon 19th century Chinese word for all martial activity, would this concept have even made much sense to the people whom he discussed? Nor is Holcomb alone in this problem. While some authors occasionally offer some definition of martial arts, we as a field of martial arts study have yet to actually do the theoretical work of debating and flushing out this concept. Even if we cannot generate a universally agreed upon definition, at least we will be better for having gone through the exercise. Ben states that he actually suspects that conceptual fuzziness rests behind a lot of the debate on religion and the Chinese martial arts. He plans and does expand on this in a future post, which is the one that I was going to bring to you, but I had to come back and offer you this particular episode as a backdrop for the future one. But for the sake of argument for right now, let's think that most people who use the term today see the traditional Chinese martial arts as something like what I'm about to describe. So in Ben's diagram, it is titled Modern Western View of the Traditional Chinese Martial Arts. And the way that he has this laid out is that each one of these areas I'm about to mention are set out as a single category organized somewhere close to it. And you'll be able to find all this on your show notes so you can look at it. And each area has a little overlap in some areas with others. But here are some of the main areas that he identifies where they bring together both practice, belief, and symbols. On the very top of this modern, traditional view of the Chinese martial arts, it has the military. Then slightly to the left is the opera. Slightly underneath that is local militias that come from the military. Just to the right of that are caravan guards, which is where Ma Sigun Kolin Yin had his work. Underneath that flowchart you have wuxia novels, boxing instructors, and bodyguards. Then you have law enforcement, medical doctors, then at the bottom, bandits and rebels. So all those categories come together, bringing together practice, belief, and symbols. While many different groups may have practiced various styles of these martial arts, they all share certain core techniques and characteristics. Furthermore, and perhaps most of all from an academic standpoint, the martial arts are an important artifact of pre-modern indigenous Chinese culture. If the ancient martial arts were a single, more or less unified tradition, then it might have made sense to ask where they came from and what influence religion had on their development. Yet, as Ben suspects that this vision of the martial arts would have been alien to many of the inhabitants of ancient China. In fact, he is still on the fence that if this concept of that martial arts were a unified single tradition, if that concept is even useful for modern historians. Ben continues by saying that he suspects that most pre-19th century practitioners would have denied that there was any single overarching identity that unified them. The traditional fighting techniques can only exist as a conceptual category 
after the introduction of modern means of violence. Prior to that, they are not a unique school of combat. They are simply the actions of violent men. We can suspect that many of the individuals that we now call martial artists would have been looking at their world something like this on their flu chart. This next figure is titled Conceptualizing the Martial Arts in Imperial China. So if we're looking at how the old folks who were martial artists would have viewed their world, over in one little section you would have the folks who were part of opera and street performers. Then over to the right you would have another cluster of these categories. The military guys, the caravan guards, the hand combat instructors, the local militia, and as well as the folks who practice medicine, which that makes sense. That's true in the Bubishi, the Wubeiji, and many of the other things that wherever you have the military, you also have people who practice medicine. Those groups would be clustered together. And then the next group would be your secret society members and the bandits and rebels, like Ben had explained before. A lot of the bandits and rebels had to turn to the secret societies in order to just move around in society and culture without getting banged up and carrying out their thoughts and feelings in a uh, safe place. But those would be your three subclusters, and those clusters would have an overlap of some of the things that they would share. Ben writes that notice how each of these groups exist as a separate sphere. Some of these occupations overlap and share a common identity with a few of its neighbors. For example, caravan guards and hand combat instructors. Yeah, you could see a lot of overlap there. But in this example, as Ben states that pre-19th century, there would not have been a lot of overlap in many of them. That's why they're clustered together the way that they are, that the opera performers are probably not going to be teaching your local militia, each of which represents a slightly different version of China's martial culture. In fact, it is probably necessary to speak of martial cultures in the plural rather than the singular. And as if that's not enough, further complicating the exercise is the fact that the elements of this figure may rearrange themselves over time or even as one travels from region to region. All of these various styles of martial traditions have contributed something to the martial arts as they exist today. Yet in traditional China, they were all very different ways of life. A bandit and a member of the Manchu elite likely had very different identities, even though they both spent a lot of time practicing archery. The largest employer of hand combat experts was the military, and there is no indication that their martial arts were anything but secular. At this same time, health practices were deeply influenced by Taoist thought, and medical doctors could and did prescribe either gymnastic exercises or martial arts practice to their patients. Could you actually argue that there was a spiritual element behind this? Perhaps. But the detail of it would be very different from a rural boxer who believed himself to be possessed by the Monkey King or an opera performer whose company was kept on a retainer by a wealthy temple. The traditional Chinese martial arts is a quintessentially modern category. It does not correspond to a single reality in Qing-era China, let alone the Han or Shang dynasties. The inherent fuzziness of this concept allows scholars to focus on different actors, 
different regions and different time periods in their attempts to determine the nature of the real martial arts. To avoid confusion, Ben says he suspects that as a field, we should do two things. First is we need to take greater care in constructing our research questions. Second, we need to think critically about where many of our core concepts come from and how they are shaping our view of both the past and present practice of the Chinese martial arts. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And eventually what I'll do is take the two parts and make them one part. Uh, and that'll probably be in about four to five months. That's been my usual program methodology anyway. And let's review real quickly. We've introduced, of course, Professor Ben Junkins. You can find all his work at kungfupodcast.com forward slash Ben. Then we also introduced in the part one, Joseph Escherich, the origins of the Boxer Uprising, which was kind of, uh, as uh, Ben described, as a spear tip that got into the modern era of martial arts studies. We have talked about numerous very well-known researchers in the field of Chinese martial studies, Douglas Weil, Peter Lorget, Stanley Hennings. And if I was going to have an antagonist, if this was going to be a story, we would have thrown in Joseph Needham and Charles Holcomb because they're kind of arguing a different point, but we realize later that they're arguing the same point, just from the other side of the fence. We looked at the reasons that we should assume that popular religion and martial arts would be often associated with large rebellions. Large social movements like a rebellion need a way to unify the group. Martial arts and religion will do both of those. I was thinking in my mind as a modern example of that. And I'm going to point to my friend Ian Abernathy. You know, if you've ever been to one of his uh, presentations, one of his seminars, he has an amazing ability because he comes from the UK over into different countries, different languages and things like that, and even internationally. But when he walks into the room, everyone there, including me when I got to meet him a few times, is that we're all there for one reason. The martial arts binds us. All of a sudden, gender, nationality, language, accents, and all that kind of stuff, because I don't have one. Y'all have accents. I don't have an accent. And all that stuff kind of goes away because we're there to focus and work on the martial arts. So religion and martial arts have a way of unifying groups in a way many other things cannot. We made a note that religion was a glue that pulled together contending factions in pre-modern civil war. It was a perfect vehicle to get you across geographical and demographical lines. Religion was also important in this role because even the Chinese government, and we know that they tried to regulate everything, they still could not regulate that part of it. So revolutionaries could find a safer haven by participating in different forms of religion. So at this point in my mind, we're kind of getting to the chicken or the egg. Did the religion come first? Did the martial arts come first? Or did the martial artists go into the religion? Did religion go into the martial arts? Well, you know, I could see the argument on either side. But as we've noticed here, there is also very clear distinctions. I would encourage you to see the graphs that Ben have put out. I'm going to try to include them in your show notes. 
For example, peasants were very familiar with the village militias as a combat organization. In fact, they, they would use smaller groups, put them together, get somebody to train them. Who trained them? Oh, that was your martial artist. Your martial artist served as the trainers and coordinators of these small village militias. Then as we're pulling into clothes and trying to identify the theatrical turn in the Chinese martial arts, Holcomb acknowledges that at particular times in Chinese history, the Chinese martial arts existed as exclusively hand combat and military skills. Then we have other researchers such as Stanley Hennings and Peter Lorget who really do a lot of research. Their work and their books focus on the deeper history of Chinese martial arts and Chinese history and how they coordinate together. And they end up saying the same thing. Oh, I can't see the darkness. And the other one's saying, all I see is light. Then you realize, oh, you're both saying the same thing. Well, I hope you enjoyed the program. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. Thank you again for joining me today in this episode, part two, where we're reevaluating the theater of combat. Don't forget, you know, there's only one thing about martial arts that, in my mind, always puts the rubber to road. You have got to practice. It doesn't always have to be a hard practice. It doesn't always have to be a punching practice or a meditation practice. But you have to have a practice that is in line with your goals. Always evaluate yourself from there and just keep moving forward. Take care of yourself. I look forward to talking with you again real soon.